Let me pray, then we'll get into this great text. Uh, Father, my prayer in this gathering is the same as my prayer in last, and that is, that is that you would help us to slow down. Our hearts and our minds can get so just full of stuff, good stuff and hard stuff that cause us to be distracted from the things that we need from you, need to hear from you, see in you, things that we need to see about ourselves. So I pray, I pray that in the midst of the busyness that is so often our lives, we would be able to slow down and that you would interrupt our lives by your word and the spirit working through your word uh, and, and just take us to places that we need to be taken. Um, I, I do pray for that. I pray, Father, that um, as we get closer to, to Easter, as we walk down this road together, that our hearts would just become fuller and fuller and fuller in the grandeur, in the grandeur of, of what took place uh, 2,000 years ago on the cross. I do pray for that. So often we can just quickly go through seasons. It becomes more about family and time off, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something greater at stake, and I just pray that we would see that. Um, I also pray for our time specifically going through your word. I need your help as a teacher. We all need help as listeners, as I said, so help us in both stead, I pray. Amen. I want to begin with a question uh, this morning. What's worse? What's worse? Denial or betrayal? What's worse? Um, anyone named Peter here? We've got any Peters? 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 A lot of Peters, probably. Peter. Peter, middle name Peter, um, probably, probably a fair number of Peters, pretty popular name. Judases, any Judases, right? It's just, and Jude or Judah doesn't count. Jude or Judah to Judas is sort of like Stan to Satan. Um, so it's <laughs> one letter makes a big difference, one letter. Like if I said any Satans here, you wouldn't go, my name's Stan, close enough? No, it's a long way away. There was a Satan that played in the NHL. His name was Satan. But on the back of his jersey, Satan. You remember that? Miroslav Satan. He played for quite a while. He's a Czech, I think. Um, I thought it would be great. Anytime I saw him play, I thought it would be great if there would be a, a Mexican who made the NHL with the last name Jesus. Wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> and they would face off. But Jesus would always win the face off. It would be great. And if they ever drop their gloves, right, Jesus would just crush his head. It would be fantastic. But we like Peter. We, like, we name our kids Peter. Peter's a saint. I mean, the Roman Catholics hold that the papacy began with Peter. Peter's my dad's name, for goodness sake. We like Peter. Judas? Judas is a different deal. Um, in the epic poem, uh, the Divine Comedy, uh, the very beginning part one of that epic poem is called Dante's Inferno. Inferno is Italian for fire or hell. In that particular poem in part one, Dante's Inferno, the author talks about nine levels or categories of hell under the earth, going from bad to worse, and they're all named something. Level nine or category nine is named treachery. And level nine has four different, what they're called, circles. Four different circles that go, again, from bad to worse. And it has to do with betrayal and treachery. They are things like betrayal of family, then betrayal to community, betrayal of guests, and then finally betrayal 
of Lords. This fourth circle or round is named Judica, I believe is how you pronounce it, named after Judas Iscariot. In contrast to the popular images, hell is fiery. In Dante's Inferno, traitors are frozen in a lake of ice. If you've ever studied it, you've known, you would have known, known this. With each group encased in ice to progressively greater depths. Only one creature is encased lower than Judas, and that's Satan himself. Here's one uh, artist's depiction of that lake of ice and what you have here in this particular image is Dante and his uh, traveler with him, uh, Virgil, having a, dis- a discussion with one of the betrayers who's been encased in ice. A pretty dramatic, dramatic vision as you kind of look at that. Uh, last week, we began a series that we're calling A Violent Hope, The Final Days of Jesus. And how we did launch this series last week is we looked at the foot washing of Jesus. We're in the upper room. It's Thursday night. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And as I suggested last week, the foot washing of Jesus does a number of things for us. It displays his love. It's a symbol of his death, and, an, and, it, and it's an example for us to follow. Our text today is John chapter 13, as I said, but we're looking at verses 31 to 35. It's a text that has as its center a new commandment to love one another. But interestingly, on each side of this command, before it and right after it, we have discussions and depictions of betrayal on the front end and denial on the back end. It's sort of like a love sandwich with two pieces of really bad bread. We got love in the middle. We got like pumpernickel. Nobody likes pumpernickel. Everybody hates pumpernickel. If you like pumpernickel, leave. Uh, pumpernickel. No, I'm kidding. It's terrible. <laughs> 17 people get up. But go off to Terra to have a big piece of pumpernickel. And on the other, maybe Melba. Because Melba is toast, which means it had to have been a bread at some point. So it's Melba, right? And, and, and pumpernickel, right in the middle, is, is love. And so with that in mind, I want to begin actually in verse 18 by looking at that first piece of bread, the, be- the bread of betrayal. <clears throat> Whoa. Uh, let me read from verses 18 to 30. I can learn to breathe once at a time. I am not speaking, verse 18, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that is John, was reclining at table close to Jesus. How they ate back in those days is you would literally recline, and you'd always lean on your left side, and you would eat with your right hand. And how things were set up, in fact, is usually the host would have those who he is closer to sitting closer to him. So John is leaning back into Jesus' chest. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Literally night, and certainly spiritually and figuratively night as well. This is a pivotal moment in the upper room montage. Many events in the upper room. As I mentioned last week, Jesus and his disciples, along with hundreds of thousands of others, have come to Jerusalem to observe Passover. Part of that Passover observation necessitated the eating of a Passover meal. To do this, they have secured the upper room of an unnamed supporter. And that particular meal, again, as we saw last week, began with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That is now complete, and so what we've walked into here in our text is the meal has begun. However, the mood of the room would have changed dramatically in verse 21 with Jesus' declaration that one of the twelve, speaking of Judas, was going to betray him. Now, like I said, the text that we're going to really laser in on today is verses 31 to 35, but I would be amiss if I didn't highlight a couple of things coming out of this portion of it. So let me very quickly remind you of three things that the betrayal of Jesus reminds us of. Number one, in Judas, we are reminded of the assurance of God's word. Here's why I say that. Put your eyes back in verse 18. It begins this way. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I would also say that not only will it be fulfilled, it has to be fulfilled. Why is that? Well, because it's God's word and God is true to his word. So not only did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him as it comes up in several places in the gospel accounts, we're actually going to see another one of those today, but we see here that this betrayal was prophesied long before. The prophecy that is referred to that was fulfilled in this event, recorded for us in verse 18, comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm verse 41, verse 9, where we read there, even my close friend in whom I have trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What's the big takeaway for us in this? Why do I highlight this? Well, I highlight this because it demonstrates and shows us that God is in control. God is sovereign, God is ruling, God is in control, even when it looks on the outside like everything else is spinning otherwise. Even in the midst of betrayal from a close friend, God is still in control. In fact, not only is God in control in the midst of Judas' betrayal, as we will see in the very next verse, Judas' betrayal propels forward what will be the Mount Everest display of the grandeur, of the greatness, of the glory of God through his son Jesus. We'll see that in a minute. Here's a second thing to remind ourselves of coming out of this betrayal of Judas, and that is, in Judas, we are reminded of the spiritual battle that wages a war over our allegiances. There's a real spiritual battle that takes place, not only in Judas's life, but in our life as well. We saw this last week. If you just put your eyes back to verse 2 in the same chapter, we read, we read there, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. But we are reminded in verse 27 what we just read 
that then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered Judas. So we see this very real battle going on. This doesn't remove Judas's guilt. I'll highlight this more in a, mo- in a moment, but simply reminds us that a spiritual war rages on in the battlefield, battlefield of our hearts and our minds. As I've said many times over the years, I know we love to trumpet the fact that we're spiritual people. Uh, over 90% of people in Canada would, would state that they are spiritual people. And I don't disagree with that. I, I believe that we're more than just flesh. I believe that we are spiritual people. I, I totally agree. What, what just amazes me, however, is that in the midst of a world that has so much evil around it, that we see every day that people would naively think that in the spiritual world there is only good. Why would you think that? What would give you any sort of support for that? We have, we have evil in the world. We have that which tempts us and calls us to go against what God has for us. But that, that is evidenced as well as we see here in the spiritual world that our power that we battle isn't flesh and blood but the principalities and the powers and the rulers in the heavenlies. We see that again here, reminded of it. A third thing that this reminds us of is that in Judas we are reminded that past work and participation doesn't necessarily evidence a current spiritual condition. Judas was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the 12 chosen by Jesus. And so trusted was he that he was left in charge of the finances of Jesus and his ministry. So highly thought of was Judas that even after being sent out, it didn't compute or register with the disciples. They didn't get it. It made no sense to them. Why is he being sent out? Well, perhaps he's being sent out because he's the guy in charge of money. Maybe he's going to do something. Maybe he's going to buy us something that we need. Or maybe he's going to give something to the poor. They didn't get it. He was that guy. He was, I mean, if you have a business or you want to deal with, you know, investments, you want to go to somebody who's trustworthy. You go to the person you trust most. You hire that person. You do background checks. You want to make sure they're that guy. That's Judas. He was one of the 12. He was chosen. He was thought highly of. Additionally, Judas was one of those sent out two by two. Jesus sent out his disciples, not just the 12, but the 72 and the 120, two by two to do ministry. And in the aftermath of those ministry excursions, they would come back and they would just remark with great wonder. We taught, but we didn't just teach. We healed. We exercised demons. Judas was a part of that. Judas also had intimate privilege and access to be taught by Jesus, observe Jesus, walk with Jesus, and talk to him too. He would have witnessed countless miracles, the walking of the wa- on the water, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising people from the dead. But in spite of all of that, this is what we read from the mouth of Jesus in describing the situation in the heart of Judas. John chapter 6, we read, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So what's the situation with Judas? What's his heart? He didn't believe. He didn't believe Jesus. 
In spite of all of the things that he got to participate in and receive, the advantages that he had had, the time that he spent with Jesus, he still didn't believe. Why? Important question. Why? Best answer, I think, Jesus disappointed him. Jesus was neither the kind of Messiah, Lord and King, he wanted, nor the one he had in mind. No doubt Judas enjoyed Jesus' displays of power and the power that Jesus shared with him, but Jesus, instead of using that power to overthrow, he kept on talking so counterintuitively about suffering and sacrifice instead. In fact, I would be willing to bet that this last act that Jesus just performed, the washing of the disciples' feet, pushed Judas over the edge. I believe it was the last straw in his mind in regards to his take and evaluation of, Judas, of Jesus. I bet that this act, an act that should have softened even the hardest of hearts, made his heart only harder still. I wonder, while Jesus was on bended knee with his head bowed, cleaning the feet of Judas, that Judas wasn't looking down on the head of Jesus with scorn and disdain. Jesus disappointed Judas. But Westside, before we shake our heads too vehemently Judas's way, we need to recognize that we are more like Judas than we may care to admit. I mean, at least Judas received 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal. Many of us betrayed Jesus for a lot less than that. What's worse? Extraordinary betrayal or just the run-of-the-mill kind? There are many, aren't there, who love Jesus much, that is, at least up to the point that it begins to cost them. Many like Peter who love Jesus when wielding a sword, yet cower before total strangers around a fire. Mike McKinley writes this, lots of people say they want to follow Jesus, but the reason why they want to follow Jesus will only become clear in the hard time. See, Westside, when we enter the final days of Jesus, we are Peter and Judas. We, we are these two individuals, wilting under pressure or choosing money over the Messiah. But keep in mind, when we enter the final days of Jesus, we are also the high priest and the Sanhedrin too, demanding that God justify himself to us. We are the disciples not able to sacrifice an hour or two of sleep so as to stand in prayer for a friend. We are Barabbas with Jesus having, to come, having come to take our place. We are Pilate trying to wash away the guilt that only Jesus can. We are the crowds praising him one day and wishing him dead the next. We are Simon called to carry the cross that Jesus hands us. And Westside, we are the thieves on the cross, accused rightly, confronted with eternity, and faced with the decision, will we choose Jesus or curse him instead? Aren't we the smug ones today who ask, what is truth, like Pilate asked? Aren't we like Herod, demanding that Jesus perform just one more sign? And finally, Westside, we are the nails that fasten Jesus on the cross too. As Stuart Townend penned and we sang, Behold the man upon a cross, 
my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, Jesus' cry, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, was a cry as much for us as it was for the people standing at the foot of the cross. See, Westside, we can't read the final days of Jesus without placing ourselves in the middle of them all. That's the first piece of bread, the bread of betrayal. Before we look at the other piece of bread, let's look at our text, the guts of the sandwich. Take a look at verses 31 and 32. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Let's just stop there. Let's press the pause button and make sure we get what Jesus is saying in these two verses because they can be confusing. First of all, the, the, the big key word in these two verses obviously is the word glorify or glorified. It comes up five times. What's it mean? Well, quite simply, a helpful definition is to make a proper representation of uh, so when we as followers of Jesus, for example, uh, are called to follow him and glorify him, that means we will live in such a way, talk in such a way, think about things in such a way, give ourselves to things in such a way that, that represent God well and demonstrate that we're one of his disciples. In fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus says as much when he says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So that's first, just note that that's what the word glorify means to bring or make a proper representation of. Secondly, the thing I want you to notice in these two verses is the relationship between glory that Jesus refers to here. What do I mean by that? Well, one, one relationship is that Jesus will be glorified. You see it in verse 31? Jesus will be glorified. But number two, we also read that God is glorified in Jesus. That's number two. And then if you drop down to verse 32, we read that Jesus is glorified in God. So Jesus is glorified, Jesus is glorified in God, and God is glorified in Jesus. Just note those for now. We'll double back, and I'll tell you the significance of that in just a second. The third thing to note about these two verses is that when Jesus says now, you see that word now? Now is the Son of Man glorified. He's not talking about that exact moment of time. That in some way Judas leaving, now I'm glorified. What he is referring to here is that now with Judas having gone do what he has gone to do, things are now in fast and certain motion. There's an escalation. Things are ramping up. I mean, just note again one more time, if you don't mind. Notice what Jesus says to Judas at the end of verse 27 when he says, what you are going to do, do quickly. And at the end of verse 32, what does he say? He says, and glorify him at once. So what we get here is that with Judas coming betrayal, there is this new sense of nearness over what's about to take place, which leads to the fourth thing that I want you to note about these two verses, and that is when Jesus refers to the glorification or the glorifying that's about to happen, the glorification that he is speaking of is the glory of the cross. That's what's about to take place. 
What has Judas gone to do? Betray him. What you're going to do, do quickly. Now is the Son of Man glorified. I'm, I'm now being ushered. Things are ramping up. Things are now quick. Things are going to take place. But put all of this together. Remember the three things that I talked about in terms of the relationship between glory and Jesus and the Father? Well, if glorification speaks of the cross, what do we discover? Well, we discover that Jesus is glorified on the cross. We also see that Jesus is glorified in God on the cross and that God is glorified in Jesus on the cross. The glory of the cross is spoken of in the beginning of Jesus, what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 1 when he states, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour, speaking of the cross, has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So we see this here. Judas' betrayal is escalating the movement towards the cross. This is why, by the way, if you look back at verse 21 and you see that word trouble, that Jesus is troubled there in his spirit, I think the reason why he is troubled in his spirit is more speaking of the foreshadowing of the anguish that he was about to soon enter, depicted in places like the garden, than it was over the betrayal of Jesus or Judas specifically. I don't think his heart is troubled just because Judas betrays him. I think Jesus is troubled in his spirit because Judas is going to betray him and this is leading to the cross. And what does the cross do? What is the great trouble that Jesus has angst over? Separation from his father, first and foremost. Like a pregnancy with all that leads up to the birth The contractions are now being felt with each coming faster and faster. If you've had a child, you get this, right? If you've had a child, you understand, right? One day you wake up, you go, man, it's been more than 30 days since I wanted to rip my husband's face off. Uh Uh-oh, right? Uh Uh-oh. So you pee-pee on a stick, smiley face. You're pregnant, right? Excitement, right? We can talk frankly here, right? We're friends. (laughs) We all know how that works. Right, excitement. So you start ramping up. Man, you're pregnant. It's fantastic. Nine months, going to have a little bouncing baby boy or girl. Things begin to just be led up. You start doing things in preparation. Office is turned into a nursery, right? The baby whisperer is pitted against demand feeding, right? You start going online. and There's about four ladies that understand what I'm talking about. You have sonograms, you have baby showers, you buy cribs and toys and clothes and diaper genies. We love diaper genies. You buy jeans that have that false front on them made out of lycra. It's awesome. They should make those for men. They're a good thing. (laughs) You make love in new ways. You don't make love at all. You can't believe I said that, can you? (laughs) Again, come on. What else takes place? Well, finally, one day, while you're dipping a chicken McNugget in a Costco-sized vat of peanut butter, <laughs> right, because you just can't get enough of that. You go, man, this is really good. I don't know why it's good. I just love it. All of a sudden, ooh, contraction. Time is here. All the preparation over the nine months, all of those events, all the things that you have been looking forward to are coming quickly. The time is now here. And what do you cry out? Well, what you have to do, do quickly. Why? For much pain precedes birth. See, Jesus came to die with many events building up to his death. Jesus came to bring new birth. The birth of a new creation. 
but it was a birth like any birth that demanded pain before the result thereafter. And that is why Jesus says in verse 33, what he says when he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Why does he say this? Well, because it was a journey that he would do alone for only he alone could realize what the journey was to achieve. The question then becomes, going back to these two verses and talking about the glory of the cross, the glorification that Jesus speaks of points to the cross. Jesus is glorified on the cross. The Father is glorified in Jesus on the cross. Jesus is glorified in God on the cross. What's the question? The question is, how does that bring glory to God? This killing apparatus? Shameful? Excruciating? How does that bring glory to God? At all, well, let me give you seven ways. There are more. First, because of what it achieves for the Father. How does Jesus glorify the Father by going to the cross? Through his obedience to the Father. Again, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, I glorified you, speaking to his Father on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do The glorification of the Father is seen in Jesus' willingness to obey unto death. God's splendor is perfectly seen in the Son's sacrifice. A second reason, because of what it achieves for those who come to faith in Jesus. See, on the cross, Jesus paid in his death the ransom price for all people, and by this act, he brings people to glory, as the writer of Hebrews in verse 10 of chapter 2 writes, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, speaking of Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory. That reference to sons to glory, many sons to glory, is a reference to the greatness of our salvation. And don't be put off by that word sons and try to make it sons and daughters because there's something really important in that reference to sons because it speaks of firstborn sons who receive the inheritance of the father. We all want to be, regardless of our gender, we want to be firstborn sons of the Father, adopted into his family. Whether you're a man or a woman, you want to be a firstborn son. Because what is ours is ours through him, adopted, now co-heirs, brothers and sisters with Jesus. The third reason Because on the cross took place the greatest work the whole of history has ever seen or ever will see. On the cross, Jesus does for the human race what no man or woman could ever do. A fourth reason, because on the cross, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death. As Colossians 2 records, the cross disarmed and triumphed over our enemy. A fifth reason, because on the cross, the manner in which Jesus suffered also glorified him You see, make no mistake, Jesus willingly suffered. Willingly. He was led, not driven. No one takes my life, Jesus says. I lay it down and I will raise it up again. All this crap about cosmic child abuse on Jesus is crap. It's a joke. Jesus is God. Lays his life down. And in that he brings glory to the Father as he glorifies himself on the cross. 
The sixth reason, because the cross is the avenue that leads to Jesus returning to the glory that he had since the beginning. Again, going back to the high priestly prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then finally, and this is not finally as meaning that I've exhausted all the reasons why the cross brings glory, but finally for the ones that I will give you this morning. Because on the cross, is displayed the grandeur of God's love in fullest measure. John writes this in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So God not only defines love, God fleshes love up. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, if you ever study it in John 1, verse 14, there's a prologue to the Gospel of John. First 18 verses are a prologue to the rest of the Gospel. And in the 14th verse of the first chapter, John writes, we have seen his glory, speaking of Jesus. When he states that, it is never more so than when he is lifted up. That's when we see his glory in grandest display. Think about our Savior, though, in that. His wonder and brilliance is never more evidenced than when hanging on the cross. Think about that. How do we make sense of that? This, it's, it's paradoxical. How do we make sense of that? Well, helping me in this, I read someone liken Jesus' death on the cross to a beautiful yet broken bottle of perfume. You take a beautiful bottle of perfume and it's broken, but what pours forth is the, the grandeur of what's inside. So the beautiful aroma that is Jesus on the cross, broken, the beauty of the aroma of Jesus goes forth. I like that. We see the display of God's glory on the cross, even though it doesn't make sense, even though the Jewish people stumbled over it, they didn't get it, nothing glorify, glorifying about it. But a Messiah on the cross, they missed it, as so many do. The last verse that was on the screen, 1 John 3.16, is a great lead into the final two verses of our text because it helps us make sense of what is actually a pretty confusing command. Look at it with me. Let me show you why it's confusing. Pick it up with me in verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just stop there. There's the commandment. What's confusing about this command is that the call to love one another is not a new command. It's as old as the Old Testament. In places like Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy, I believe, chapter 5, we read of this command, Deuteronomy chapter 6, excuse me, for example, we are called there amongst other places and instructed to love our neighbors. So what then makes this a new command? Well, the answer is that it's a command given now in the shadow of the cross. As we see in 1 John 3.16, it tells us that we now know what love is. We now know. How do we know? Jesus laid down his life for us. We now know what love is. The rest of verse 34 actually affirms this. Just put your pretty eyes down to verse 34. Jesus goes on to say, Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Therefore, it's a new command to love, for now it's a revealed love. We see it. We know what it is. But what does it reveal specifically? 
Well, here are some other things that we see about this new command and what we need to see about it in light of the cross, and that is it's a sacrificial love. That's why Jesus says in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And the beauty of what Jesus did is he didn't lay his life down just for his friends, for his enemies. And there's no greater love than that. It's a sacrificial love. That's why Paul writes to husbands in Ephesians 5, They're called to love their wives as Jesus loves the church. And how does Paul describe how Jesus loved the church? By giving himself up for her. Giving himself up for her. You know, we take some shots, or I take some shots personally about my take on leadership and men's roles in ministry and families, but I want to tell you, I don't think there's a woman out there who wouldn't follow and want to be a part of a relationship where a husband died for her. And there's nothing in our culture today as it pertains to relationships that I go, yeah, I want to follow that. I want to follow that. No, I want to call men to die for their wives. Get over yourself. Get over myself and die for our wives as we follow our Jesus. That's why last month in our Real Men series, we talked about real men die. That's what real men do, follow Jesus, they die. They die to self, they die for their wives, just as our Jesus did for us. We also see specifically in the love of Jesus that it's love extended to enemies. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not on the screen, I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And therefore, another thing that this love is and why it's a new command is that it's an empowered love. It would have to be. It's not natural to love our enemies and mean it. You can fake loving an enemy. You can fake it. But to truly love an enemy needs to be empowered, and that's why Paul writes in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? I'll try that again. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. It's love. That's right. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's why we just feed the Spirit. We feed the Spirit. How do we feed the Spirit? That's where the disciplines come in. Times like this, you feed the Spirit. So that unnatural becomes natural, not because you're grunting it, but because it's flowing out of you by the work of the Spirit. You died. You don't have to, you don't have to be determined anymore. You partner. As God works in you, it fleshes outward so you can love the unlovable. It's the Spirit's empowerment, not our own determination, that enables us to love our enemies, to be patient and kind, to not envy or boast or be arrogant or rude or insist on its own way or to be irritable or resentful, to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. That requires the work of the Spirit in our lives. Lastly, it's a testifying love. Take a look at our last verse of our text, verse 35. By this, By this, speaking of this new commandment to love as Jesus loved, 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why do disciples love? We love because we follow one who came in love and love to the end. The greatest apologetic we have in the church today is our love for one another. It's our greatest apologetic. Can I simply ask this question? It's a question you will wrestle with in your community groups this week. What aspect of love are you not extending to your brother, sister, son, daughter, friend, roommate, husband, wife? What aspect? That's the middle of the sandwich. Pumpernickel, bread of betrayal. Let's end by looking at the second piece of bread. Melba. Let's take a look at it. Let's read verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. It is interesting that this text with its new command to love is sandwiched by betrayal and denial, isn't it? Why is that? Well, I'd like to think it's because Jesus sent in love For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus sent in love, a love shown in most glorified fashion on the cross, paves the way for betrayers and deniers to come back to him. Remember, it's after the betrayal and it's after the denial that Jesus goes to the cross to pay for the penalty of the betrayal and the denial. In fact, in one recording of Peter's denial, it says that after the third denial, the rooster crowed and Jesus and Peter locked eyes. And Jesus then went to the cross. Tragically, however, only one of the two came back. Peter, after his denial, runs to the desert and weeps and wails over what he does and did. And later in John 21, he's he's restored and reinstated by Jesus. But Judas doesn't return. Now, some would argue, but Judas showed remorse. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 and 4, talk about Judas showing great remorse, having great remorse. In fact, he gave back the 30 pieces of silver He, in fact, said, I have sinned. I have sinned against innocent blood. So he he admits his sin. He has remorse. He gives the money back. No doubt about it. He displayed much remorse and regret over what he did, but what he didn't display was repentance. And there is a chasm of difference between remorse and repentance. (coughs) In fact, I could go out and stand in front of the center out on Homer Street and I could stop 100 people who walk by, ask them the simple question. You ever done anything you regret, have remorse over? You ever done anything that you know you shouldn't have done? 
Have you ever quote unquote sinned, whatever you want to call it, did something that was contrary to what you know you should have done, any remorse, any regret, done anything like that? If I stopped 100 people in the city of Vancouver, I, I would guess that 100 people would say yes. See, the issue in our world today isn't remorse and regret, it's repentance and the lack thereof. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. There's a worldly sorrow that leads to death, and then there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, as Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 7. I asked when we began our time this morning, what's worse, denial or betrayal? It's really not the most important question. The most important question is, what do you do in response when you do? For we all do. Perhaps you've chosen the 30 pieces of silver, so to speak, over Jesus. Perhaps you've denied Jesus before others in word or deed. Here's the good news. The love of Jesus can cover you regardless. If you come to him, but come to him not in remorse or, reg or regret. Come to him in repentance and receive the love that he wants to lavish on you and the grace. Don't run from him. <coughs> run to him. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I thank you for your love for us. But I stand in awe that you don't just declare your love for us, you fleshed your love for us up, dying for us. This, now we know what love is. You died for us. Again, not while we were friends, but enemies. And in that dying for us, grace is offered Penalties paid if we would come to you, come to you in repentance. Repenting of those things that we have done that have been for our glory and not yours. So I pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that in this time of response, today, over these next few minutes, that you would rest hard hard and heavy on all of us. That those that don't know you would come to know you, they would run to you, that they wouldn't allow the regrets of past decisions in their life cause them not to come to you, but run to you, recognizing the grace that you offer them, want to extend to them, this love that you want to lavish on them. I pray for that. I pray for those of, you that, those of us that do know you, that if there are things that we're doing, living, thinking, believing, that are contrary to what you have for us, that we would cut those away today and run back to you. Again, receiving that grace upon grace that you offer us. I pray that this would be pleasing time. Like I said, Father, I pray that it would be a ministry time where, again, your spirit just works. I pray that there would be no distraction, that the enemy would have no work, that we prove to be good soil. Good soil, I pray. We love you. We love you desperately. And we know that we only love you desperately because you first loved us. So thank you for your love that found us. And we want to return that now in our lives and what we say and how we worship and so forth. So I just pray that it be pleasing to you. In Jesus' great name I pray. Amen.